0: Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our series in Acts. Great to see you all. Um, I want to just give a shout out to our youth department, particularly Willie and Jennifer, for the fine job they did last week. I hope you. <laughs> it says a lot about you because we call it uh, youth takeover. And it's not a hostile takeover, it, but it is a takeover where suddenly you have to do church their way. And uh, some people are really good about that. It's like, oh yeah, this is an adventure. And other people are, I am a mouse and you have moved my cheese. Uh, it, it, it's a little bit uncomfortable, but uh, for me, uh, as I watched it online, it gave me a lot of hope because that's the future. And uh, we have to invest in the future, and the question is, what are the uh, what is Gen Z going to look like uh, running the church? You know, And some of you are frightened by that, and uh, I'm actually very encouraged by that. I think uh, they'll do a much better job than we have done. Um, so today, um, just to share with you, Jen and I. Uh, and some of our pastors were in Dubai for a few days. Um, you may not be aware of this, but uh, we as a church, you know, we, we have a very global perspective and it's been very good for me over the last 25, 30 years to interface with uh, the church in South America, Africa, Asia, Europe, uh, to try to get away from my my optic vision of this is the way the world is and my judgments and my perceptions as well as uh, my Christianity and how I read scripture and, and so forth to, to try to uh, be with conservative Christians from around the world and, and, and to learn from them. And so maybe about 10 years ago, we were invited for, for the first time to Korea to be a part of a summit where about 70 pastors get together and said, what if we were friends for life? Uh, We're pastoring large churches in our particular countries, but what if we met together with our wives to learn from each other, to befriend one another, and just to admit to God that uh, we can't do this alone. that A we is bigger than a me, and uh, to humble ourselves and to admit, uh, we don't know it all, and uh, we. So it started ten years ago. It was about eight years ago we were invited. Up until that point, no Americans were invited, and uh, the reason being is because we are known by the rest of the world as the people that take charge of everything and know how to do everything, and 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 are task oriented and don't know how to just relax and have fun. <laughs> so. We were the first church in America to be invited into this, this uh, consortium, and uh, it's just been a phenomenal time, you know, to grow and to learn, to laugh and to age and to be together as, as friends, and I've learned so much from our counterparts, particularly uh, more recently our new counterparts in Europe. God is doing some amazing things in Europe. And uh, the amount of refugees that are coming to Christ in Europe, it's just phenomenal. (laughs) So exciting to see what God's doing in Sweden and Finland, for example, as as well as parts of Germany. But also to learn from our South American, Asian, African counterparts, uh, just learn so much. But I love coming home to you guys. (laughs) It's just uh, I love your church. I, I, I want to join your church if it's okay. Uh, you don't look happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> Will you have me? Well, um, I want to pick up with where the youth left off and uh, start in Acts chapter 6 and go on into chapter 7. So if you can turn there with me in your Bibles, and we're going to study the life of Stephen. Uh, I think the things that we learn from Stephen are just phenomenal. And the, the import of Stephen is that Stephen is just like you. He's nobody special. He's nobody different. He's no, nobody who's gone to some seminary to learn this or that. He's just this guy that God uses and gives him an entire chapter and a half of the Bible. And, and he preaches this incredible sermon that's recorded, chapter seven, and it's forever in the Bible. And we're going to learn from Stephen, this wonderful man. And I think the things that we're we're going to learn are going to surprise you. Number one, we're going to learn how to give ministry away, not just decide I'm 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 called to ministry. And I think we all are called to ministry of some sort. Uh, certainly a mother 's called to ministry the more moment she gives birth right you have a, you don 't have a choice you 're now ministering to your children, but we 're all called to minister but here 's the big one: do we know how to give ministry away, or do we just get tired of it and walk away so we 're going to talk about that. The second thing we 're going to talk about is how to keep our radical love for Jesus alive and 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 full of worship, and not get uh, bogged down in the routine, routine of religion, but to keep it wide-eyed worship. And then the third thing is gonna surprise you. I'm gonna teach you how to die. We're gonna talk about martyrdom, because that's the, how the story goes. Stephen actually is martyred at the end, and it's a surprising thing, for you and I to learn from in a context where we're religiously free, but it's certainly something that people in restricted countries have to think about. So let's take a moment to pray and we'll dive in. Father, we would ask you right now to speak to us through your holy word. We we hold your word to be sacred. We ask that you would speak to us. Uh, you, Holy Spirit, know what each of us need to know and to learn, and we ask that you would speak to us individually, in Jesus' name, amen. So, let's go back to, I'll start in verse 7 of chapter 6, where we read, "...the word of, the, of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Interesting array of words. To believe is to become obedient to the faith. Oftentimes when we think about faith, we think of everything but obedience. But obedience is where we begin in our walk with Jesus Christ. Step number one is to become obedient to the belief that he died for my sins. I obey that truth. And now, Jesus, what else do you want to teach me? What else do you want from me as I begin to follow him? So great thing happens. But in the context of the, the word of God spreading rapidly and many people coming to faith is the challenge that was discussed by Jennifer and Willie last week and what happens when the ministry demands are so big that we can't meet the needs uh, that, that are present. In their case, uh, there was this situation where the Hellenistic Jews, which were the, the Jewish women that were raised outside of Jerusalem in a Greek context, though they were ethnically Jewish, They happened to be in Jerusalem at Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out, and they became Christians and hung around Jerusalem, but had no way to make money, had no means to make money. So the Jerusalem church was trying to care for the widows, both Jewish women who were Hebraistic, born in and around Jerusalem, and Jewish women who were Hellenistic born outside. Are you with me? And so what to do? So what was happening is they were taking up offerings, just like we do with the benevolent offering. I'm gonna move these so I can see some of the beautiful faces over there. Uh, They were taking up these offerings and dispersing them, but who was doing it? The apostles. The guys that hung out with Jesus for three years are spending their time helping people get food. And finally, they just say, time out. This is not what we should be doing. We should be praying. We should be studying, preparing, and preaching the word of God so that more people can come to faith. Well, then who is going to disperse the money and the food for the people that need it? And they have this great idea. What if we find seven Hellenistic Jewish men that we'll call deacons, it's the invention of that word deacon, Um, and ever since then, everybody has a different view of deacons, whether they're elders or whether they're just lower than elders and all this, every church has a different tradition on it, but the word just simply means minister, servant. So let's appoint seven servants full of the Holy Spirit to disperse things. Now, how would you know someone who is full of the Holy Spirit? Is that a good question? Is it someone full of exuberance? Like, hey, how you doing? Is that person full of the Holy Spirit? Or is this person full of the Holy Spirit? Yea, verily shall we pray? How would you know someone who's full of the Holy Spirit? The answer is love. God is love. God pours himself into you, and you begin to manifest the fruit of God, and the primary fruit being love. So, Stephen was one of those seven people. Another name that you'll hear later on in Acts is Philip. Now, the question is, does Stephen have other gifts? What what is he really called to do? That's not important right now. What is needed is we have women who need food to survive. And Stephen is chosen to be one of these people to get the job done. The question I have is where did they get this idea? This idea of diversifying and recruiting other people. And my answer to myself is they learned it from Exodus. There was another community that was in its infant stage in the book of Exodus, and the leader of that community was Moses. And if you'll remember the story in Exodus chapter 18, Moses finds himself ministering to thousands of people who have counseling questions, and the queue is just out the door, and he spends all of his time doing this. His father-in-law Jethro comes and visits and says, and I'll put it on the screen here. What you are doing is not good. Who says that to somebody who's trying their best, working really, really hard? You might even say, burn out, working hard. Well, it's a great word to hear, just like the word in Acts chapter 6, verse 2 is a great word. It would not be right for us as apostles to stop preaching and now spend our time handing out food. Both statements are a pushback to burnout over ministry, someone thinking that they're all-sufficient, they're the one that does it all. It is not right. What you're doing is good, but you're doing too much of it, and it's not good that you now see yourself as the all-sufficient person. This is applicable to all of life. In my role as a pastor, it's very easy for a pastor to become the ceiling where the church can't grow beyond the pastor because the pastor needs to do everything. The pastor needs to approve what's in the bulletin. The pastor needs to approve who can hand out bulletins. The pastor needs to approve Uh, Who can be teaching in Sunday school? Not The pastor needs to be the one that does all the counseling because he or she is the all sufficient one. And you and I say, that's not good. That's not healthy. It's not the view that the New Testament has of the diversification of the gifts of the spirit and that we all get to play. I think there's questions that I even have about the modern church. The fact that uh, when you have a preacher that's dynamic and amazing and everybody wants to hear that person, we have the idea that, yeah, it's so great that we should put his or her face on screens all over the city because they're the only one that can teach us. I think, ah, that's maybe initial success, but what does the church look like in 30 years when that's the only one? that can do it all. Or when someone says, no, no one else can counsel me, but this one person, because this one person is the only one. The scripture says that view is not good. It's not healthy. It's not, it's not the future. It's not letting you and I out of the dugout and, and onto the playing field. If you took this into your business, you would say, it is not good. I mean, the corporation will cheer you on that you're giving your blood and your soul for the corporation. But when you die, they'll forget about you within five days, right? But if we find an employee that's gonna, you know, they just work 80-hour work weeks. They just slave themselves. And it's just like, yeah, I love them. We just drink their blood. How about moms and dads? I'll do a little meddling here. Um, You know, no one can make pancakes like I make pancakes. No no one can do the laundry like I do the laundry. No one can cut the lawn like I cut the lawn. In fact, when my kids are 38, I want them to come home and have me make them their peanut butter and jelly sandwich because I'm their mom. Well, some people raise their kids that way, but we would argue that a healthy family would be no... We invite you to leave home. (laughs) We're getting applause on that one. But how how would you send them off, knowing how to survive or not knowing? So there's this issue, whether it's the home, business, or church, of giving away ministry, giving away life and opportunity, Here in our staff, the the staff have heard me talk about this so much that I thought it was important for you to know what the staff knows. There's five words that to me are important. Recruit, train, deploy, monitor, and nurture. Oftentimes when we realize that I'm doing too much, I look around and say, you know what? I, I just gotta delegate this. Here, you do it, I quit. And we call that delegation. That would be like you on the freeway, feeling like you've driven too much, and say, you know what, I've driven too much. Here's the steering wheel, goodbye. And you open the door, and out you go. It's just, it's not the right way to do it. So how do we delegate properly? Well, there's five steps. Recruit, find someone. In this passage, they were looking for someone full of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people full of a lot of things. But they wanted people full of the Holy Spirit, not full of themselves. Secondly, so that's who we recruit: someone who has met God, who is godly. Uh, secondly, train. Don't just de- delegate; hand it to them. Teach them how. How do you do what you? How do you do the laundry? How do you cook? How do you do the bills? How do you do life? How would we train people to know what we know? You know a lot. You know more than you think you know. How do we do that? Well, there's four steps to training. I do it. You watch me. I do it. You do it with me. You do it. I do it with you. You do it. I watch you. Four steps necessary. I I was... uh, online trying to figure out how to use my tech toys. And you know, I, I get this, this long list that's been written by an engineer. And I'm thinking, ah, you know, what is all this garbly-goop of trying to... And, and some 13-year-old comes by and just says, oh, you, you just do this, and I said, whoa. That's a, could you do that again? Let me do it with you. Now, you watch me while I do it. And I learned so much faster than a manual, right? So recruit, train them. Secondly, thirdly, rather, deploy. I like that word rather than delegate just because it, it has a sense of responsibility. They're, they're on mission, they're gonna do something. And then, fourthly, uh, recruit, train, deploy, monitor. Check in. How's it going, little buddy? How's it working out? Is there anything I can help with? Um, I've learned when I used to do uh, premarital counseling, um, the monitoring was really, really necessary, but I couldn't do it up front. Because if you ask someone who's in love and wants to get married, is there anything I can help with? The answer is, nope. We're in love. We're the most amazing couple in the world. And everybody else has problems with money, finances, kids, sexuality, in-laws, outlaws, but not us. We are that couple. So there's no point in monitoring at the front end, but then wait six months. What are their questions six months later? Oh, God, help us. So you step back in and monitor. How you doing? How's it going? Any questions? The needs-to-know level goes way up. It's like inductive learning, immersion, uh, learning a language, and then finally, nurture. I think that anyone that steps into the pocket to to volunteer to do ministry of whatever sort, handing out bulletins, changing diapers, evangelizing on the streets, there ought to be something that they get back in return uh, from somebody, and that's nurture. You're awesome. Let's hang out, let's get a cup of coffee. Let's, that nurturing that comes from someone is a key part of giving ministry away and I assume that all of this was going on as the apostles are giving away this ministry to these seven people. Now one final thing before we move on. Regarding your ministry, I think there's two parts to ministry, two fronts to ministry. One is your gifting that the Holy Spirit has given you, and one is doing what's in front of you that you don't feel gifted to do, okay? With Stephen, what we'll see is he has this incredible gift to preach, he has this gift of wisdom, he has this gift of evangelism, and he has a gift of miracles. And that guy is now distributing food. Doesn't feel like a gift fit, does it? but he's doing it because it needs to be done. If you only have gifts taught for our lives, then oftentimes we'll only do what we feel like, what gives me energy, what the gift inventory said, this is my gift. So someone dies in front of you or falls down sick and you look at him and say, sorry, I don't have the gift of healing, excuse me. I hope someone else comes along with that gift, because that's certainly not my gift. Uh, We have to do what's in front of us sometimes that we don't feel gifted for. Mothers know that. What mother has the gift of staying up with a child with the flu? Is is that a gift? No, you do it because you're a mom. So in the church, we, we do things that we're gifted for and we do things that are in front of us that just need to be done out of love. Amen? So, in in our staff here, I often teach them that uh, pastors often sign up for the battle. They, they they go to Bible school or seminary for the battle, and the battle is preaching the Bible. The battle is counseling that couple. The battle is training leaders. That's But most of our life is spent in the supply line. Like a supply line general that's not in the battle but he's counting bullets he's he's supplying getting food he's getting troops there and he's just kind of counting and make sure that everything happens and in our lives we we love to do those things that are critical in the moment but a lot of life is just answering the phone <laughs> yes, you're, a, you're serving us right now. That was the gift of phone. That was amazing timing. I don't know. I'm, a, I'm hesitant to give other illustrations now. The gift of email. The gift of, you know, of just cleaning up your desk, whatever's in front of you. You can't just live for this, because otherwise it's really taking the the idea of gifting and making it a humanistic, selfish thing rather than this love thing that God has called us to. So at the end of the day, Jesus said, if a grain of wheat doesn't fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it falls in the ground and dies It bears much fruit. And each one of us, we eventually have to give our ministries away. It's something that I think about a lot. Um, Not because of my age. I'm a very young man. But someday, someday, I'll get older. And I have to think about, well, who's my successor? I have to think about uh, the health of this church and how do I give ministry away. And I do that every day for the last 30 years of raising up... Uh, people around me that I think are much better at doing ministry than I, and I think it's a healthy way for all of us to to operate. So if I become a home group leader, the first thing I'm thinking is, who's my successor? I become a host of a home group, who's my successor? I become a children's ministry teacher for two-year-olds. I wanna be that person Because the success of leadership is when you're no longer leading. The success of a president is not while they're in the White House. It's after they leave the White House. And the success of mom and dadhood is not when the kids are home. It's after they leave home. And so we always want to think about this idea of empowering the next generation and the people around us. I think I beat that dead horse enough. I, let's, let's move on. So now we come to this incredible sermon that Stephen preaches. And now we move from what was in front of him to his giftings. He was this guy that's just out there dialoguing and mixing up uh, with the people in the synagogues. And it says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So there you see his giftings. He can't make that stuff up. This is just the Holy Spirit and God coming upon him. But the opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. That is a a particular sect within Judaism. And uh, it says, Jews of Cyrene, Alexandria, and, and as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia who began to argue with Stephen. And they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave to Stephen as he spoke. So what do you do when you can't fight fair? They begin to fight unfair. And they stir up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law to seize Stephen. They bring him before the Sanhedrin. So here's this guy, he's just on the benevolent committee. And now he finds himself in front of Congress. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish Congress. And he's being asked to give an account. These other people produce false witnesses that testify against him, saying that he's speaking against this holy place, referring to the temple. And against the law. And we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us, which is obviously not true. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw his face. So he's just sitting there like the face of an angel. And then the high priest turns to Stephen and says, Are these charges true? And he gets the moment of moments where he now preaches to the senate and the congress what a moment just because he was faithful to do the little things that god had called him to do now in his full giftings he is speaking for the leadership of all of israel and he begins very tactfully by saying brothers and fathers listen to me the god of glory appeared to our father abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, and he begins this long sermon. I don't even think we have the full sermon recorded in Acts. We have a a, a portion of it. But what it becomes is a sermon. Listen. It becomes a sermon on true worship. He begins to set up this tension. He talks about Abraham, our father, was called from Mesopotamia to the promised land, ultimately to worship. Remember the great incident where he goes up on Mount Moriah with Isaac and God's testing him to see if he's going to stay radically obedient in following Jesus in his heart of worship, uh, following God. Then he goes on to Moses and says, Moses was called to take the children of Israel out of Egypt to worship. Then he begins to talk about the Israelites when they came into the land and how they steered away from true worship and begin to, to uh, offer to idols and, and how they even with Moses said to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And they steered from true worship into idolatry. Then comes the climax of his sermon in verse 48 where he says, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. So now there they are either in the temple or next to the temple. And and he's led them in this sermon that leads them all the way. And finally we get to the Promised Land. Finally David builds this temple through Solomon for God And he has the audacity to say, God doesn't live here. Whoa. It's a great question. Does God live in the temple? Is that God's home? I mean, that's where the table of showbread is. That's where the ark of the covenant is. That's where the priests are always in the home of God, doing the things of God. Even church people call this the house of God. It's a great question. Does God live here? And he has this radical moment where he says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, quoting Amos. What kind of house? Will you build for me, says the Lord, and where will my resting place be? So Stephen chronicles for the leaders all of this stuff, and he eventually is expressing this tension between true worship and the religious props that point towards God but aren't God. Does that make sense? So a religious prop is like a sign. Uh, let's, let's say that you want to go on vacation. Where do you want to go? This, uh, you want to go to Tahiti? Great, we'll take you to Tahiti. So let's suppose you're, you're, you're reading uh, Lonely Planet on Tahiti and you're reading uh, Steve Ricks, is that his name? Rick Steve, sorry. Horrible when a dyslexic guy is a pastor, you know, and and you're reading all these books to get ready for Tahiti, and your spouse comes home after you've been reading on this for weeks and weeks, and and they come in to your room, and there you are with another book. In fact, you have stacks of books, and you're 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 mumbling to yourself, and you're saying, hey, 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 hey this is so cool, you know, and just like. Honey, I think you've gone a little bit overboard. These books were pointing to Tahiti, but we're not there yet. (laughs) These are so cool. Uh, Oftentimes, we do the same thing with religion. Things that were to point to God become the thing, the building. I always wanted a Bible with a true leather cover. Love this leather Love this leather. I always love this song that we sing. This is the song. When we sing this song, can't be that song, can't be that song. In fact, I don't even like those songs. This is the song. Or this is the way I have my devotions, or this is where I have my... It can't be over there, can't be over here. It has to be right here. In all of these things, we've obsessed over something that was only to be a signpost, and we made it the thing. What Stephen is saying in this entire sermon is all of the Old Testament was a signpost to Jesus. Jesus, who is bigger than all of this, and you killed him. And now you're still worshiping the signposts. Well, if you were writing a book on how to influence people, you can understand how it goes south from here. If you look at verse 51, he, he ramps up with this final crescendo and says, you stiff-necked people. Try that in your TED Talk. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Now, that is not anything you say to a Jewish man. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law, that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Wow. So, just to finish this part of of Stephen's message, what he's really calling all of us to is true worship. You can't just pin this on uh, Jewish men in the Sanhedrin of the first century. This is all of us. We're always being called back to Jesus, back to baby skin, back to virginity before Jesus, before the world did this and this and this. And when I love Jesus with all my heart to pursue him like that true worship. This would be where you would say amen. I think it's true. It's so easy to become familiar with the the signpost to Jesus and miss Jesus. So easy. Jesus spoke about this very thing to the woman at the well. Remember the dialogue? Well, you guys say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Our guys say it's Mount Gerizim. What do you say? And Jesus says, woman, the time is coming and now is that those who worship him, will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's what God calls us to. He calls us continually back to true worship. So can I just pause here and just ask you, how are you doing, little buddy? How are you doing in your passion for Jesus? How are you doing? Have you just made it just a ritual and just some, some signposts? and Have you lost that first love that just says, I'm in, Jesus, I'm smitten. Maybe that's the way. Are you smitten? In love with Jesus. And for that question, they stoned Stephen to death. They couldn't hear it. And so the story ends like this. When the members of the Sanhedrin, verse 54, heard this, they were furious Nobody talks to me that way. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, could have gone a different way. They could have gone, oh, my gosh. He's so right. I have to humble myself. I have to admit my wrongs. But he's so right. But in their pride, they went against Stephen and then in the meeting of the Sanhedrin, in this congressional meeting, Stephen has a vision. He looks up and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he says it out loud to all the men See, I see heaven opening up, and the Son of Man, i.e., Jesus, is standing right on the right hand of God. And of course, that thrilled them. Uh, Verse 57, at this, they covered their ears. They didn't want to hear it anymore. And yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats. They they, literally, in the emotion of the moment, they killed him with stones. I can't imagine. It's got to be something worse than that. Crucifixion, but horrible. Stone after stone after stone. Maybe you're, you're losing an eye, you're losing a tooth, and you're in pain, but you're still conscious. And finally, that one stone that hits you in the temple, and you lose consciousness, but the stones continue until you're dead. That's a lot of anger. It's a lot of hatred. But Stephen stands in the gap. He, he stands there, but then there's this little clause At the end of 58, that says, they laid their coats. All the people that were stoning Stephen, you know, they got into it and they had to get rid of their coats because it's uh, it's, um, restricting their throwing arm. And they lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this becomes the pivotal moment where Saul now... Is introduced into acts we leave the Jerusalem story to now the story of Saul and just as Stephen is you in the story what's my gift what have you called me to will I will I love you with pure worship now we realize that we're in the story also in the life of Saul Saul the chief of sinners Saul, the persecutor, if you jump down into chapter 8, you read these verses. Saul approved their killing of Stephen. So he has some kind of authority. He becomes this Gestapo guy. And it says, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and everyone was scattered. There's going to be some uh, heavenly magic in the scattering of the Christians, because God has something in mind, and it says godly men buried Stephen. They mourned deeply for him because he was so loved, but Saul began to destroy the church. Such vehement hatred for the church. He, he goes from house to house and dragging off both men and women and imprisoning them. And as you know, God ends up loving Saul. And he becomes a Christian. And I'm telling you, there's a chance for you. Amen. I mean, think about this. Can God love a murderer? Can God forgive someone who's, who's just everything short of the Gestapo itself. Can God forgive and change that man's life? And and he does. And that's for another day. So I close this morning with this whole issue of martyrdom and the issue of Stephen dying for his faith. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you too. Paul, the same Saul, he later says, it has been gifted to you not only to believe but to also suffer for his sake. He also says everyone who seeks to live a godly life will be persecuted. And that's you and me. So the question I want to close with, are you willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice as Stephen did, for your faith in Jesus Christ. We have a problem in America, by the way, if you haven't noticed, we have a problem. Because the way we get people to accept Jesus is we smuggle them into heaven by telling them, hey, wanna accept Jesus? You get to live forever. You wanna accept Jesus? He's gonna heal all your, all your sins, all your disease. You wanna accept Jesus? It's gonna be amazing. You live forever, you have friends. It's just amazing. And God has a wonderful plan for your life. And each convert says, but what's it? What's this in the fine print, this font that I can't even see? And we say, oh, don't worry about that. That's just for somebody 2,000 years ago or somebody in the Middle East or China. Don't even worry about it. But what does it say here? God has a wonderful plan for you. That's all you need to know. And guess what? When you and I experience difficulties, we don't know what to do with it. So I go, thought, God loved me. And I, you know, I had a bad day. The traffic on the five was really bad. And so what do we do with this idea of pushback and persecution and even martyrdom? So what Jesus did when he taught, he was always not far away From saying, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his instrument of death and follow me. That's what they heard when they heard the word cross, not a silver necklace with jewels on it. Take up the instrument of death and follow me. And that was always the decision. Do I believe in Jesus enough to die for him? It's a great question. But that is the question that will determine how you live. Guaranteed. Can you imagine an American soldier finally being on the front lines and saying, yikes, someone could die out here? I had no idea. This is scary. I'm not sure I'm willing to die for America. I'm not even sure what America is. What is that construct? America. I don't I'm, we would all say, hey, you should have thought about that in boot camp, <laughs> right? Why are you now thinking about that? But in the church, we make sure nobody thinks about, Do you think happy thoughts. <laughs> but true worship, I believe, is saying, I love you so much, God that I would die for you. Let's get that done out of the way so that now I can truly live. They think about this in China. They think about this in Iraq and Syria and other parts of the Middle East. They think about this in India. They think about this in, in many parts of the world, but we rarely think about it here in America. If we would say at the outset, I would die for you, Jesus, guess what our Christianity becomes like. A radical, adventurous, full-on worship that's just re-defaulting and resetting ourselves week after week to, to follow Jesus the way he would want because... He died for me, said "Tag you're it, and now I'm following him. So Stephen is a huge hero. should be, for the entire church in America and the rest of the world. say, I want to grow up and be like Stephen. This guy who served, this guy who used his giftings, this guy who preached in the most difficult of settings, and this guy went ahead and died for his faith. And what we'll see is the blood of him as a martyr becomes the seed for the thriving of the church in the book of Acts. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.